0: Thank you. Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, prison and post-liberalism. Wanda Bertram will talk about a new study of the demographics of the inmates of state prisons, and the historian James Chappell will explore the topic of post-liberalism, notably the thought of the reactionary Catholic Adrian Vermeule. The U.S. has about two million people behind bars, about half of them in state prisons. Who exactly are these people condemned to a miserable existence? As you might suspect, most of them are people who have been treated very badly by American society. Poor, largely black and brown, often first arrested in their teens, and in and out of the so-called criminal justice system for much of their lives. And they're getting older. The Prison Policy Initiative, a nonprofit that studies mass incarceration with the aim of rolling it back, is just out with a report based on a federal survey that profiles state prisoners. We're joined by Wanda Bertram, a writer who works with the group, to discuss its findings. She'll also talk about the vexing history of bail reform in New York State, in January 2019, the state legislature ended cash bail for most misdemeanor and nonviolent felony charges. The idea was to keep poor people who can't make bail out of confinement because jails are horrible places. Almost immediately, the reform came under attack from cops, prosecutors, and the tabloid press, and it's been steadily weakened ever since. Here's Wanda Bertram. Before we get to the the substance of this, just want to draw some distinctions here. We're talking about prisons to start with, right? Uh, And of course, there are other detention facilities. We've got jails. We've got immigration detention facilities, juvenile detention facilities. What is the taxonomy of the U.S. carceral state before we get into the uh, demography of the U.S. prison population?
1: Right, right. The whole landscape of the people locked up in this country is spread across uh, different kinds of facilities, state prisons federal prisons, uh, local jails are the big ones. Then you also have immigrant detention facilities, uh, civil commitment, youth confinement facilities. So, you know, you might call it juvenile justice. Those are kind of the major ones. And those things are all uh, disparate parts. And they're not always reporting data in the same way. Our report today called Beyond the Count is uh, just about people in state prisons.
0: And the usual number we hear of what, 2 million behind bars, about half of those are in state prisons, right?
1: That's correct. Today, uh, partly due to the uh, drops in prison populations during the COVID-19 pandemic, the number of people in state prisons uh, on this day in 2022 is a a little over 1 million.
0: How much has it fallen over the last year or two?
1: It's been about 15%. That's largely been because the COVID-19 pandemic jammed the gears of the criminal justice system. So when you have uh, police officers out sick or um, not able to do things because of social distancing and the same thing applying in the court system. And when you can't have jury trials, uh, in person, all of that adds up to fewer people being admitted to state prisons. It's not really because anybody in the prison system all of a sudden grew a conscience and said, we don't want to incarcerate people because they, you know, that could turn a prison sentence into a death sentence. For the most part, that did not take place. But we did see just because of these incidental uh, kind of gum ups in the system, a, a drop in prison populations, I want to say 10, 15%.
0: Now on to the substance of your report here. Who are the people in prison to start with? Let's start with race and age. What do we know about that?
1: Race-wise, the numbers are not really going to surprise anybody who's uh, you know a regular listener of the show. It's uh, disproportionately people who are black. Also, uh, Latino people are overrepresented. Native people are overrepresented. Basically, every racial minority except for Asian people are overrepresented in prisons in this country. You also have a a rising number of people who are on the older side, so 55 and over, and people who are on the younger side, even though as a percentage they've been declining over the last several years, are also uh, rather overrepresented in prisons. So you have large numbers of people who are on the older side, on the younger side, um, and, and racial
0: minorities. The older side is because people who were sent to prison when they were young have very long sentences and they're just aging and perhaps dying in prison.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's something that I think is interesting about this report. Let me step back a little bit, too, and say the big thing that I think we took away from this report, right? We know that our government allows kids to grow up in poverty. It's a choice that has consequences. And those consequences are kind of the main finding of this report. We looked at the survey of prison inmates, which is a study that the federal government did in 2016 and released over the last couple of years. And the study asks people in state prisons all kinds of questions about their backgrounds. And what we found is that 12% of people in state prisons were homeless when they were kids. About 20% were in public housing. About 40% belonged to families that were on public assistance when they were kids. And when that shows very clearly is that for many kids in poverty in this country, you know, being recipients of public assistance, being poor uh, and then, you know, uh, receiving public goods has not led them to a better life as a welfare system should do. It's led them to prison. That's the most uh, startling demographic finding that we had in this report.
0: And they also tend to get arrested a lot a, from an early age.
1: That's right. Um, The data show that uh, 68% of people in state prisons were arrested for the first time at age 18 or younger. uh, And that includes 38% who were arrested before the age of 16. Uh, So that's almost 400,000 people who are locked up today whose first arrest happened when they were uh, 16 years old or younger than that. These kids really never had a chance.
0: Mass incarceration began what close to forty years ago. Where it's got got going close to forty years ago. So people who were arrested in the early phases of that could now be you know in their sixties and seventies, right? So we're having people who know nothing other than prison for almost their entire adult lives.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know people will frequently ask me or my colleagues how does the cost of incarcerating somebody compare to uh, you know the cost of getting them mental health treatment in the in their communities? What I would say to that is that you have to look at the cost of incarcerating somebody over you know, the entire course of their life. The average person in state prisons we find in this report, the average person in state prisons has been arrested over nine times. The cumulative cost of that and the cost of locking somebody up over and over and over, I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as these folks get older, right? Not only are people getting old behind bars, but also the experience of being in prison is accelerating their aging. A year in prison takes two years off of your life expectancy. Issues that you had with your health before you went to prison become more exaggerated. You can often develop new issues like mental health problems or problems that result from a bad diet and not getting a lot of exercise. And really what this comes to is a prison system that today is caring for a lot of people who are um, effectively elderly, even if they're only sixty years old, they're physically elderly, and that is, you know, it's it's incredibly inhumane, and it's also very costly.
0: And of people who were grown ups when they're um, committed to state prisons, what was their job market experience like?
1: Well, the last time that we saw that we had this this data set, which was, I think, 20 years ago or so, the last time this data was collected, we got a look at people's income levels. And that's when we began to see that the average person in state prison had um, an annual income, I want to say, of uh, like $20,000 or so. We couldn't get that data uh, this time. The survey just didn't allow for a a good analysis on that front. But what we did find uh, was that people in state prisons uh, disproportionately were working two jobs at a much higher rate than the general U.S. population, and a very high percent also report uh, looking for work but being unable to find it. Among people in state prisons, you can calculate an unemployment rate prior to incarceration of 15%. And that's off the charts, right, compared to the U.S. general population. So what this shows is that, you know, people and people who go to prison are frequently struggling uh, in the labor market before they end up there. That's important because, again, it underscores the fact that this criminal justice system that we have is warehousing uh, working class, low
0: income people. And drug use. How common is that in the pre-prison life?
1: It's very common. It's uh, it's so you got about sixty five percent of um, people who were using uh, some kind of illicit substance in the lead up to incarceration. Also, interestingly, about fifty percent of people before prison uh, were in substance use disorder treatment. That's that was kind of an interesting data point that I talked to my colleagues a bit about because I was like. Does this mean that substance use disorder treatment is not working? They quickly corrected me on that and uh, mentioned that most people who are are getting this treatment before they go to prison probably were in treatment because of a prior conviction. They had gone through the court system before and a judge said, you have to get treatment or you're going to get locked up again. And I think that's a very important part of the story uh, because the the treatment options that we have for people with addictions in this country are are not good. Whether you have an alcohol problem or you have a a more problem with a more, quote unquote, more serious drug, the options for treatment are not great. And sadly, a lot of them are are being provided by uh, private companies that stand to make a profit off of this. Now, when you get caught up in the criminal justice system, Uh, your agency to say, I don't want to seek out treatment that's not going to be effective for me is reduced. You know, all of a sudden the court can say, you have to get the treatment that's available or else we're going to throw you behind bars. And I think that for a lot of people in prison, that is the story of what's happened to them.
0: Yeah. I interviewed the sociologist Rebecca Tiger a few years ago about drug courts and these kinds of punitive uh, treatments. They don't really work very well and they're probably not very good programs Anyway, but um, the, the fact that there are people that are there under compulsion is not uh, a guarantee of success.
1: Yeah, and I mean, frankly, I think even if they had a one hundred percent success rate, you'd still I, I would still find it very disturbing because we're effectively using our criminal justice system to coerce people who never had a good option for treatment um, or never had an option that they found desirable into uh, doing treatment, uh, and and that's you know that is. Uh, serving to enrich a lot of the private companies that are providing the drug treatment that exists today, where we have a a, health care system that's riddled with inequities. People who are working class are brought into the criminal justice system via this, you know, various drag nets that we have and then forced to accept uh, the very poor quality treatment that's available in this country right now.
0: We mentioned uh, some of the other satellite institutions of this criminal justice system at the beginning. You could almost think of them as waiting rooms or prisons or orientation rooms, right? The immigration detention and juvenile detention. How many current state prisoners had experience with that kind of introduction?
1: Immigrant detention, I'm actually, I I don't quite remember, but uh, juvenile detention is very common. So like I said, the average person in state prison has been arrested over nine times in their life. And most people in prisons were arrested for the first time when they were still a minor. What that's ended up with is about one-third of uh, state prisoners who were in uh, juvie at some point in their life. And that, uh, I think, is also connected with the fact that the average person in state prisons today is 39 years old and has a 10th grade education. Uh, when people are locked up that much as kids, it interrupts their education. It cannot help but do that. And that has pretty serious downstream effects. You know, these kids uh, who are growing up in, in poverty, they don't, they don't have a chance Right, our government chooses to intervene in their lives at a very early age, and it's not to give them care, it's not to get them better education or any kind of support system. It's to lock them up.
0: I'm speaking with Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. Any notion of educating people while they're in prison has uh, been pretty much thrown out the window, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it, it has, especially you know after the '94 Crime Bill, which you know included some provisions that asked. Pell Grants for incarcerated people. Um, we could get into that and the way that they're bringing back uh, Pell Grants for incarcerated people now, but it's really depressing because it's mostly private companies that are making money off of this and providing some of the worst education options you have
0: ever heard of in your life. Yeah, could you say a little more on that?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, there's a, a company called Securus that we do some research on at, at uh, Prison Policy Initiative. They are uh, primarily a phone services company, so they make money by charging incarcerated people and their families to make phone calls. But over the last few years, as successful advocacy has forced federal and state agencies to put a cap on the amount of money that they can charge for phone calls, They've gone and they've, you know, quote unquote, diversified their offerings. They no longer just do phone calls. Now they do video calls, they do electronic messaging, and they've acquired a subsidiary called JPay, which uh, provides tablet computers to prisons. uh, And they say, you know, these tablets are great because they include a college program. So you can go to college for free on a tablet. Long story short, that is one of the major ways in which states have chosen to avail themselves of uh, second chance Pell uh, opportunities. So uh, I think a disproportionate number of state prisoners now are going forward are going to be receiving college educations uh, on these tablet computers provided by private companies. Besides the fact that this is a pretty bad education as educations go, I mean, I don't think you would want to send your son or daughter to college on a tablet, right? Uh, It's also insidious because the tablet computers on which people access these programs are also Riddled top to bottom with games and movies and all these other like little uh, little features that uh, you have to pay for. You know, it's as if you were going to college on a website where there's a sidebar that offers online gambling. It's really really insidious, and the fact that state prisons are just buying into this and they're you know they're eagerly drawing up contracts with these companies is something that we should be pretty concerned about.
0: I noticed, um, I think it was this report, perhaps one of your other reports, 600,000 people a year admitted to a state prison. 10 million a year go through a, uh, local jails. That's a, an amazing number. Um, could you just talk a bit about the local jail? What What's the population like? Why are people there? And what is life inside one like?
1: The first thing I want to say is that, you know, people think that going to prison uh, messes up your life. It does. But even going to jail can mess up your life, right? Part of that is because, you know, we have these systems now that coerce people into taking pleas and pleading guilty to the charges that they're brought against them just to get out of jail, so you're arrested, you're thrown in jail for a few days, and you come out with a criminal record. Uh, and now, like you're saying, the numbers of people that go through this system every single year are massive. I don't know the exact number of people who are convicted of crimes or felonies every year because of being put in, in jail, but you're right. Somewhere between 5 million and 10 million people go to local jails every year, and they're churned through this system. And when they come out, they do not have the strength that they used to have as members of of society, because having a criminal record uh, impairs you in the job market. It impairs you from uh, getting housing uh, that you that you know that's actually desirable. And and you're under the thumb of the criminal justice system. You're under surveillance, and you now have to do whatever it is that the court wants you to do, or face going back to jail.
0: Just to switch the topic radically, New York State has gone through a bunch of gyrations on bail reform over the last year or two looks like we're going in the wrong direction now. And I think a lot of other jurisdictions are going to be looking at what's happening here. So could you just uh, review uh, the history for the people outside of New York? What's going on with bail reform in this state?
1: Right. Yeah. We've been talking about the way that the criminal justice system pulls in low income people, working class people. And this is part of that. Um, Money bail is a pretty nasty system. It's a dragnet that pulls low-income people into the criminal justice system. Uh, Once you're in jail and you're, you know, you're forced to stay there because you have to pay a bail amount that you can't afford in order to get out, the pressure is now on to plead guilty to what you're charged with for a number of reasons. It's very hard to get your defense together if you're locked up. And also taking a plea often allows you to go home with time served. That's better than staying in jail. So money bail helps ensure that more working class low income people end up with criminal records now you know you asked about new york On bail reform, I think the data do not matter to people in office. Uh, Governors all across the country, like Kathy Hochul here in New York, uh, where we both live, are rolling back bail reform, even though the data showed that money bail does virtually nothing for public safety. People who are locked up pretrial feel, and they're correct in feeling this way, that they're not being punished for any risk that they pose to the public. They're being punished for being poor. But these governors, they don't care. Uh, Governor Hochul does not care because you know, apparently a guy who was released pretrial threw poop at somebody, and we can't have that, right? Uh, it's like, it's like okay, you're not a policymaker, you're a dog. You can't take this person's attention away from a piece of poop. That is the kind of governor that we have in office right now. They care more about these individual quality of life offenses uh, than about public safety data. And unfortunately, uh, more and more uh, public officials are following these people's lead.
0: The lie, of course, is that... Uh, you know... Being overly indulgent, releasing people without bail is leading to the wave of shootings uh, we've been seeing. Is there any kind of relation between um, letting people out and uh, um, this wave of shootings we've seen over the last year or two?
1: The thing to keep in mind is that this link between money bail reform and a wave of shootings has been completely promulgated by police departments including police officials in New York uh, City who actually ended up uh, being forced to recant these claims when they were put under oath last year. There's really never been any data showing that uh, money bail reform leads to more crime. And yet this is just something that's being repeated uncritically in the press. Uh, Reporters have called me up and say, "You know, does the Prison Policy Initiative have any data showing uh, the amount that bail reform has impacted crime? And I keep saying to them, what would make you think that? And they say, well, the police department told us that it was. And then I say, well, have you asked the police department for any data on that? And they say, well, the police department is not providing us with any data on that. Right. So it's completely insane to be in my position right now and to have to say over and over again to people, there's nothing. There's no, no numbers that exist uh, showing that money bail reform does anything bad. In, in fact, the numbers that we do have show that money bail reform uh, helps people stay out of jail, uh, pretrial, rearrest rates sometimes go down in some places. Um, and the most important thing is you no longer have this terrible policy that is dragging people into the criminal justice system and saddling them with the criminal record just because they're poor. That was the goal all along was to make things a little bit fairer so that you no longer had a two tiered criminal justice system. But again, our public officials do not care about that. They have not been inside these systems. They don't really care about working class people. Uh, and so they will they will turn their backs on something very sensible like bail reform at the drop of a hat.
0: What are they thinking? I mean, what's the idea behind this punitiveness? I really, you know, at some level I just don't quite understand the cruelty of it. Do you have any thoughts on what's driving it?
1: There's a lot of things to say about that. There's it's almost too much to go into because you could talk about, you know, the the bail companies that benefit from this system and you could talk about the fact that, you know, it it helps it burnishes the um, the image of certain um, you know officials in law enforcement and courts when it, you know, when they when they can say, you know, we're locking up more and more people. But really, what I what I think about a lot is the idea of distraction. Just yesterday, there was this horrible shooting that took place uh, in Brooklyn and in Sunset Park. And I think, you know, I couldn't help but think really important thing to talk about after an incident like this is why the city is making it so hard for people to protect themselves from violence right? You know, why is it that uh, hospitals keep closing in New York City? Why do MTA workers have to work so hard, why, you know, and yet still not have the resources they need to get people timely directions on where to go, how to leave the subway when a shooting is happening? Why is it that my roommate and I did not get notified of the area that we should stay away from until two hours after the incident took place? The systems that we should have that would help people protect themselves from violence are not strong. They're weak. And, you know, unfortunately, they're, they're continuing to wither, even under the current mayoral administration. And I think that the focus, to bring it back to the question you asked, I think that this repeated focus on bail um, and bail reform is meant to distract the public away from these really, really immediate social service needs that are not being met.
0: That was Wanda Bertram, a writer who works the Prison Policy Initiative. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. ¶¶ Some of the Karlheinz Stockhausen's In Freundschaft, in friendship, performed on the trombone by Christian Lindbergh. A few weeks ago, a new publication debuted itself, Compact, which presents itself as some kind of left right hybrid. Representing the left is Edwin Aponte, a self described Marxist with socially conservative leanings. The right is represented by Sorab Amari, a veteran of conservative outlets like the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Commentary, and Matthew Schmitz, who has a history with the reactionary religious publication, First Things. Among its contributing editors is Adrian Vermeule, a reactionary Catholic who teaches at Harvard Law School. Compact, which coincidentally, I'm sure, shares its name with a German neo-Nazi magazine, got an opening day right up in the New York Times, partly because of the freak show left meets right angle. With Vermeule fresh in mind because of Compaq's launching, I was intrigued to see an article in the Bias magazine, which calls itself the voice of the Christian left, by James Chapel, historian who teaches at Duke, about Vermeule and the post-liberal politics he exemplifies. I was intrigued not only because I'm fascinated by the right, and as someone who grew up Catholic, by Catholicism, but also because of the clear attempt by this crew of reactionaries to appeal to a confused and disjointed left that's lost much of its sense of unity and purpose since the demise of the Bernie phenomenon. Chappell's article is a review of a new book by Vermeule, Common Good Constitutionalism, which is an expansion of an article he wrote for The Atlantic magazine in March 2020, an event that was overshadowed by the arrival of COVID. But like COVID, Vermeule and post-liberalism aren't going away. Here's James Chappell with more. By the way, I invited Vermeule to be on the show,
2: but he refused.
0: Who is Adrian Vermeule?
2: He is a... uh professor at Harvard Law School, and a um, recent Catholic convert. And he's a figure of some, it's hard to say how much, but of some actual authority. He sits on a sort of administrative board where he was appointed by, I believe, President Trump a few years ago. But he's most famous. And the reason that you know I wrote about him is that he is an intellectual. He writes for audiences outside the legal academy, and I think represents the legal wing of this kind of new conservative or post-liberal intellectual movement that has gotten a lot of attention in the last few years.
0: What is this post-liberal movement? What is the larger movement uh, of which he's a part?
2: There is a constellation of institutions and intellectuals and even politicians. If you think about someone like Hawley or J.D. Vance conservatism in America in the last 30 or 40 years has been a curious beast in the history of conservatism. So I'm a historian, I've written a book about Catholicism in 20th century Europe, I have a sense of kind of the historical sweep of conservatism. And what's strange to the historian about conservatism in my lifetime is the way in which social conservatism or kind of religious kinds of politics have found a bedfellow with libertarianism, free market, Big business dogma. That kind of marriage, people call that fusionism, has been had enormous power. You know, in the last half century, it's probably done more than any other alliance group to kind of shape what America has become. But also, there are some ways in which it's incoherent and inconsistent. And I think about these post liberals as people who are trying to say that kind of fusionist experiment and saying that basically conservatives can be part of a big tent conservative party with free market types was a failure. And that experiment in the free market led to the grotesque empowerment of corporations like Facebook and Disney and people like that who do not have conservative interests at heart. And our task now is to reclaim some kind of legitimate American conservatism that will not have this unholy alliance with secular, free market, Ayn Rand type folks. And it's going to be a kind of more robust, muscular, Christian American conservatism that will not flee from the state, but will actually want to use the state to create a healthy polity organized according to conservative Christian values. That's how I would sort of name what these people are doing and where they sit in kind of the recent sweep of conservative history.
0: That sounds almost un-American to me. It sounds more like a European kind of conservatism, a European
2: reactionary Catholic conservatism. I think that's one reason why I am not, not even especially an expert in American history or politics. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a, trained as a European historian, why when I read these people, they make so much sense to me because they, they remind me so much of figures that I read, you know, Catholics writing in Europe 100 years ago, who are still kind of um, litigating the French Revolution where to say that was a wrong, there was a kind of wrong turn in modernity. There used to be a more kind of communal, holistic, religious spirit that's been destroyed by modernity. We can somehow get back to that. Yeah, I mean, this is a very kind of European Christian way of thinking. And I saw it all the time when I was reading in European Catholics in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And that's probably what drew me to writing about these people now it looked familiar to me and therefore it looked frightening to me. What makes this threatening is they're tapping into something real. And I felt that too when I was reading these kind of Catholics in the 1930s or 40s or whatever. There is some kind of sense people have that, oh, I don't have the kind of community I want. My family isn't the way I want. My small, I don't live in the small town where I know everybody. I'm isolated and alienated. That is real. And they're tapping into that. And they're saying, follow us, we will guide you back to a world of humanity and face-to-face virtues and faith and things like that. And it all sounds like kind of appealing, but I've watched in the past, those same kinds of ideals and the same kind of writing turn into something horrifying. Because when push came to shove, these people tended to become fascists because they see modernity and capitalism and things like that as being too modern, too foreign, alien to our traditions or whatever, when the crisis moment comes, they tended to be fascists. And that's, that's kind of what I'm worried about when I see this kind of writing. Like, those are the alarm bells that go off.
0: That kind of anti-modernism sits uneasily with, as you pointed out, the fusionist embrace of capitalism. Because, you know, there's those passages in the Communist Manifesto, for example, where Marx and Engels talk about how capitalism dissolves all fixed and fast relations, you know, all, all its solid melts into air. And to someone in the Marxist tradition, that's almost a positive side of capitalism. Absolutely. These guys are against it. How do they make peace with
2: capitalism? I don't know. That's an interesting question. And I don't know that I have seen... The figures here directly confront that issue? Like, what would they do with the market? I think that their response would be something like the libertarian ideal of free markets allows for the most efficient outcomes. As a man of the left, I believe that to be false and pernicious. And I think that another thing that's kind of appealing about these figures and what makes them kind of dangerous is they also see that that is false and pernicious. They see that what capitalism does is produce new kinds of elites. In their view, it's just the wrong kinds of elites. And that's the problem these people have with like Facebook or Twitter or whatever. It's not that these people have power to shape speech. They believe that in the natural order, there should be elites and speech should be shaped. But capitalism or free market capitalism gives that kind of power to the wrong people. It gives it to bad, secular, anti-Christian types who run Facebook or whatever. And so I think their basic view about the economy, about capitalism, is that it ends up empowering the wrong kinds of elites who end up guiding society in ways that are not good for most people. They're kind of right about that even if I don't agree with the solutions they have, which I think is basically to use the power of the administrative state to empower new elites who will kind of morally guide the nation in a better way.
0: Okay. This takes us to this piece that uh, Vermeule wrote for The Atlantic what like a year or so ago against originalism. He uh, is uh, very critical of the tendency in legal thought, particularly right-wing legal thought, to try to f- divine the original intent of the framers of the Constitution. He's denouncing the constitutional fetishism that actually is also fairly prominent among liberals as well. Mm-hmm. And he wants to get into some notion of the common good that's ruling things, not texts or um, intentions from 200 years ago we're trying to divine, but you know this idea of a common good. What is the common good? He's kind of vague on the
2: details. For sure. And that- that was one of the um, things that I wrote about. So the thing that I wrote was he had a book that came out, which tried to then defend it. And so-
0: Which is an expansion of the Atlantic piece, right?
2: That's right. So he wrote, so he wrote this kind of crusading piece in the Atlantic about a year ago. And then the, the book version of it just came out. And I was sort of eager to see it because I thought, oh, here's where the rubber will hit the road. Here's where it will become clear what he means By the common good, like what he thinks should be the kind of guiding legal philosophy, it still is extremely vague. Might imagine that's because he doesn't want to show his cards. It might be because it's just like not an effective book or whatever. But the idea is basically that jurisprudence and politics and so on in America has focused too much on individual rights and the protection of individual rights. And that then becomes the um, most important role of government to protect my right to um, do whatever I want, to own property, to uh, speak freely, even pernicious opinions. And eventually, in course, of course, what becomes a real test case for them, a right to uh, change my gender. He thinks that this whole idea of organizing the government around individual rights claims is deeply pernicious. It creates a situation in which the state no longer has a sense of what is good and what is right and what is true. And he thinks that in a healthy society, the state has to have that sense. And that's what he's gonna call the common good. The state and the enlightened rulers of that state should have some sense of what is good and what is right and what is true and should use its power to create a society that kind of embodies that. Okay, fine, that sounds great. I believe that too. And I believe that what is good and right and true is equality and uh, healthcare for all and things like that. What does it mean for Vermeule or to put it in a way that makes it more important? Like, what does it mean for these kinds of this new brand of conservatism? Like, what do they mean by that? What are they trying to achieve? And they are pretty sketchy on the details. The so things that they have said, it's it's a lot of things. That they're obsessed with the issue of gender and um transgender and that being sort of respected by law and things like that, the gender piece of this is really important. And I'm not sure I have a kind of overwhelming theory about it, but it does seem like the kind of transgender panic right now is the crest of a wave of kind of gender panic going back a long way. He hints in the book, I think that he would be, gay marriage would be an example, gay marriage by, with the Obergefell decision, the state saying, we recognize gay marriage, from the post liberal perspective, what is happening there is the state is saying, we endorse this marriage that is counter to nature because we don't want to violate your rights. And Vermeule would want to say, no, marriage is between a man and a woman that is written in the heavens, it's written in the stars. So the state has to abide by that. His version of the common good, although he doesn't spell out in this book, basically is a pretty socially conservative Christian vision. It's
0: interesting that he shares this obsession. he being so highfalutin and quoting Aquinas and dropping a lot of Latin in his writing, shares this obsession with some of the lowest yahoos in American politics. <laughs> yes, I know
2: it is it is it is it is it is very striking.
0: He's not really big on democratic consent either, right? He said uh, in the Atlantic piece, subjects will come to thank the ruler whose legal strictures, possibly experienced at first as coercive, encourage subjects to form more authentic desires for the individual and common goods, better habits and beliefs that better track and promote communal well-being. So we're going to be grateful for having this imposed on us.
2: Yes, I think, I think so. My take on how he or the, or the post-liberals would think about democracy, I don't think that they are opposed to democracy. I think that they are part of a kind of quite, you know, to be fair, quite long and storied tradition in which the particular kind of regime doesn't matter that much. So if you go back to like Aristotle or something, there are lots of good kinds of rule. Democracy is one of them. And I think that they would say that democracy is okay if it is organized in certain ways. And that gets to their real interest in Eastern Europe, for instance, and especially in Hungary, because Hungary is still technically a democracy, it's what we're calling an illiberal democracy. It's a democracy that has lots of restrictions on speech, lots of regulations and laws that are defending the traditional family against its supposed attacks from minorities or transgender people or something like this. And so I don't think it's necessarily anti-democratic, but if we believe in terms of uh, the mechanism of voting. But I think that if we think of democracy in a more kind of robust way, which I think is really part of the American tradition, like democracy is a system in which everybody's rights are protected and everybody can flourish the way that they choose to the best of their ability or whatever. They see that kind of democracy as bad and pernicious and modern.
0: And he also uh, rejects the claim from uh, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey opinion that the individual may define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. The idea that the individual should define that should be not only rejected, but stamped as abominable and beyond the mm-hmm. realm of acceptable forever after. First of all, there's a lot of for there. Um, but That's second, right. That's right. it's just impossible to imagine how you go out imposing something like that on a, a population as messy as the United States.
2: Yes, I know. And that's, they kind of, I think, avoid spelling out exactly how it would happen. And it is definitely true that to imagine the kind of deeply chaotic and disordered and diverse and beautiful country that we have turning into anything like this, it's a utopia. But as a historian, what is possible is that a state could try. That is very scary. And what it would look like is... You know, we can see it already with um, kind of abortion legislation in some parts of the South. However good it sounds in practice and however nice the words they use are about community and tradition and things like that. So Rabbi Amari, who was another one of these um, figures, you know, if you read his writings, they, it's these things that sound nice. Like I like tradition. I like community. But if you try to imagine a world in which those values turn into actual governance I don't think there's a way you can do it that is not completely stained with blood and does not end up in practice. Yeah. Just being a kind of brutal regime, these things can be persuasive and and they write a lot and they publish a lot in increasingly kind of prominent places about the virtues of tradition and the common good and things like that. And it all sounds very nice, but as a historian, I've seen people talk and write that way before. And I've seen what happens when those people come into power. And what happens is bloodshed. And I'm not even sure that they're aware of that. But for me, those are, as I said before, like those are the kind of klaxons I hear when I read this kind of rhetoric. I'm speaking with the
0: historian James Chappell. You talked a bit about this already, but I want to go into it a bit more. Why are they so down on big tech, social media, which is curiously a position they share with post-liberal fellow travelers like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald? What's motivating this uh, contempt?
2: I don't know. I mean, I know, that, I know that Josh Hawley has a whole book about it. I mean, all I can say, I'm not sure I have, I have a, a different way to put it. I think there's something slightly different here than the kind of cancel culture brigades, because I think that... Vermeule and people like this don't really have this sort of abstract commitment to free speech. I think for them it's well, they more... can be very selective in their application of free speech. Oh, of course, absolutely, of course. And I think that Vermeule would say, Of course, we'll be selective. And he wouldn't even pretend that he has an abstract commitment to an ideal of free speech. I think he would say that the ideal of the public sphere, you know, this is a radio show. I mean, why do you do a show like this? You presume in some way that you're going to put this out into the marketplace of ideas and somehow it will, there'll be this kind of process where it will increase public enlightenment and public reason and things like that. And this idea is really deeply embedded in liberalism. It might even be the most central impulse of liberalism and Vermeule and people like this just think that it's wrong and that that kind of public sphere is a myth. And that in fact, if you think about the public sphere it's not a space of kind of democratic free for all of ideas but in fact it's a space governed by power and by money and the ideas that win are not the ones that are the best or the most reasonable but the ones that have the most money and power behind them they're putting their finger on something these people aren't stupid i mean they're completely right about that so they have this kind of cynical view of the public sphere and so that's why their, their critique of big tech isn't that they are interfering in the beautiful public sphere. It's that they're interfering in the wrong way. Because And that's why it's so important to them that they're these coastal liberal types. It's not that they're imposing morality, it's that they're imposing the wrong kind. Pro-transgender, pro-modern, pro-rights kind of, kind of ideology. And they're not wrong, too. I mean, it's obvious that Twitter and Facebook are not governed by hyper-traditional Christians, and that's not governing their, their decisions. And so I think, I think something like that is close to what their objection is.
0: Now, let's talk some about the relation to the left. Um, in, in that Atlantic article, the phrase, curb the social and economic pretensions of the urban gentry liberals, and that links to uh, Christopher Lash's revolt of the elites. Now, Lash was a complex figure, but he did come to these issues from some kind of left-wing position, at least originally. But we're seeing a lot of contempt for professional managerial class liberals coming from you know, the dirtbag left and you know this compact group, which now uh, Vermeule is a part. How do you see the commonalities and tensions between these two
2: tendencies? I don't know. It's a big, I mean, I'd actually be curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, it's It's a big question, and I fear a very important question, where there is a kind of brewing kind of populist contempt for a certain kind of liberal, whether it's a left liberal or a right liberal. I I think we're at a kind of moment in American history where that could take a number of different forms. You know, the dirtbag left being an example, like it could have been, it could be folded into a kind of democratic socialist, like Bernie Sanders type movement. And I don't think that Vermeule has anything in common with that. I mean, that's a totally different world. Yeah, but Sanders would never play along with the gay bashing. No, of course not. I mean, it's a completely different tradition. And I think that um, they share something, right? There's a shared sense, I think a growing sense that the solutions on offer by our mainstream parties are simply just like not up to the task that we are faced by issues of inequality and climate and things like that, that mainstream leaders and Democratic and Republican parties simply don't have responses to. And that creates a kind of alarming situation where there's this swirling energy looking for alternatives. And again, as a historian, this seems kind of familiar to me and you see a situation that could tip in a number of different directions. And I think that the Bernie movement took a lot of that on. And I think with compact and things like that, which does have some kind of disaffected leftists who are part of this, this is a new kind of publishing venture. They're making, I think they're making a play to say, oh, all you people who are disgruntled with the major parties, come join us. We are a new coalition of of sort of populists who look squarely at our problems and come up with reasonable solutions and things like this. And I think that's very scary because I think under the hood of this project is a kind of very conservative, I'm not sure it's nationalist, but it's very conservative, and i'm i'm afraid that a number of alienated kinds of people will be seduced by this rhetoric and end up becoming sort of they could they, they could have been bernie bernie folks who are celebrating the amazon labor victory but then instead could become kind of right-wing edge lords who are crusading against disney i do feel like there are a lot of people who kind of could go either way i almost regret spending so much time reading and writing and thinking about someone like Vermule, but i do think you know, it's 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 kind of a, it's kind of an interesting paradox. I have a vested interest in him becoming important because I've sort of written about him, but I have a real fear that he will become a lot more important than he is right now. I don't think he's that important, but there's a there's a world where he could become really important, and I think that's pretty scary.
0: I have a suspicion that uh, like people like Vermeule or even Josh Holly, um, these people may be smarter than some of the dirtbaggy guys that
2: are coming along for a ride. That's definitely totally possible. I mean, there's and that's one one reason I wanted to devote a fair amount of attention to them in these articles is that like, I don't think that their books are good, but they're also not dumb. Like, They know what they're doing and they have a strategy. And I think that's something that, that might be appealing. I mean, so Rebuil has a sort of stated strategy, which is basically, I think, to train a bunch of elites at Harvard Law School and stock some very powerful administrative organs of the state with people who believe this stuff. Maybe it's not a great strategy, um, but it is a strategy. And I think on the left, we're not even sure what the strategy is, at least I'm not. And I think a lot of people aren't. And so, yeah, I mean, I think these people are not dumb and that's something that is also makes them, makes them kind of scary. You know, speaking as a historian too, these people that I was reading about who became fascists, it's a myth that only dumb people became fascists. A lot of very smart people became fascists and not just the famous cases like Martin Heidegger or whatever, but lots of very smart and even humane people became fascists. This is not a war of the smart versus the dumb, and I think that sometimes on the left we can we can imagine that's the nature of the conflict, and it's not because as you're pointing out, Holly and Vermeule are not dumb, and they are saying things that are ta- they're tapping into something real, and that is what makes them frightening.
0: You can imagine the the left wing of this crew uh, getting done in at some <laughs> night of the long knives in the future. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So you obviously take this threat very seriously. This kind of drum beating maybe seem quite irrelevant. Cosplay for Twitter radicals, it always does until a shooting starts. So is this where a president, Hawley or DeSantis, could lead us, or do you have something
2: else in mind? I think that is sort of well, sort of what I had in mind, and I'm that was a quote from the uh, the article I wrote where. I have a sense, again, as a historian, that I'm thinking about the lead up. And when I say fascism, I'm not just talking about Nazi Germany 1933. I'm also talking about France, Austria, Hungary, Italy, like all these places that kind of fell to some version of authoritarianism. If you look sort of 10 or 20 years before, you see people saying things like this. Saying some version of, oh, you know, our nation is in crisis. We have to return to some kind of account of the common good that is closer to the people and closer to religious tradition and things like that. And it is, I think, and I think one of the reasons I was drawn to studying them or reading them now is it's kind of, it's like a kind of pleasurable position to hold. For some reason, that's a very attractive position to people. And I think it doesn't seem all that serious. But then, as I said before, When the situation changes, like if there, let's say there is a heavily contested election in 2024 with Hawley versus Biden, what side are these people going to come down on? It's obvious. That's why I think they may be dangerous is that if there is the possibility of a new kind of regime like this, now there's a magazine, there are all these books. I don't think Vermule is ever going to be sort of secretary of the interior, But he'll have students and he'll have influence, and that kind of intelligentsia exists. And I think there's a world in which that could really matter.
0: Yes, they're a long march to the institutions. Exactly. You end the dissent article from a couple of years ago by saying, um, How easily Bloomberg might tip into Bonaparte. We'll have to be ready and we will have to offer something better. What might that something better be?
2: Well, that's the million dollar question, right? I don't know. As a historian, I I, I probably think more about. histories of failure than success and certainly more about um, the successes of the right than those of the left. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, I, I, I know this is a, you know, a one-way interview, but like, what? how would you (laughs) respond to that? Because I think one thing that I am trying to point out is that I think that Vermeule and these people like that, it can be easy to sort of step back and mock their ideas or be shocked by them or whatever. But I do think that they are coherent. They're part of a strategy. They have the potential to become powerful And like it or not, they're linked with some popular and telegenic kinds of people. And I am not sure the left has anything like that right now. Do you? I've been thinking recently about how um, right-wing politics,
0: especially, you know, as you tend more towards fascism, there is, I don't know, a passion to it, a jouissance, partly transgressive, but also there's a kind of erotics to it that just doesn't exist in most left-wing politics these days. I mean, if we go back to, the old socialist left, class struggle uh, visions of a utopian future you know real transformative agenda now we just sound like a bunch of uh, nerds and um, I, I really do worry about that there's a real emotion gap here
2: yeah yeah that's interesting and I'm sure I'm sure there'll be some sort of leftist listening right now who will say no actually leftism is very erotic but I think you're also putting your finger on something that there's a kind of you know you, you did feel it some in the in the Bernie campaign a kind of the kind of jouissance you're talking about but It definitely feels like right now, a few years into the Biden um, administration, it does feel like that has sort of dissipated. Youth enthusiasm numbers are like through the floor for him. And I think that's one thing that is um, kind of worrying is the kinds of enthusiasm and youth enthusiasm that can be whipped up by ideas um, like this. I saw it on your Facebook page, actually, some polling from um, France about how they're relying on older voters to save the republic because younger ones are trending to towards the far right. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Le Pen has um, all the age groups except uh, the over 65s. Yeah.
2: And I don't think we're in that situation right now, but I do absolutely think that that sort of young voter surge for Bernie Sanders or whatever is not a kind of st- stalwart demographic fact that will obviously save American democracy. Because I think that, like it or not, I think that these kinds of ideas we've been talking about, these kind of post-liberal ideas, especially with spokesmen like Holly, debatably are, and I think indisputably could become very popular amongst younger people. I mean, younger people, it's not like there's some kind of aspect of your developmental psychology that means that you can't be a, a right-wing radical as a young person. I mean, fascism was propelled by young people, by young what right-wing radicals, and that definitely could happen here again. All hey, right. That's
0: a, a good if depressing place to end it. Well, you know that scene I in know. Cabaret where yeah. the, young, the blue, beautiful young Aryan gets up and sings, Tomorrow Belongs to Me in the beer garden? But-
2: i don't i don't know that although it, yeah it, it sounds it sounds a little bit too um too haunting for me to think about oh right it's
0: now. really it's really um it's quite striking um and yeah. know, he just starts lo- alone singing it and these older people are looking at him like bah, bah, bah. but then by the end of it everyone's are singing along it's mm-hmm. terrifying oh, wow. um but yeah. you know you could easily see that sort of thing um, metastasizing mm-hmm. through the population my, yeah. my wife read holly's book uh, on men or the crisis of masculinity
2: Oh yeah, I kind of I forgot about that one, and there's the, there there is the the whole.
0: Yeah, um, she said it's a really smart book. I mean, he's really really very sophisticated. Yeah, um, which is you know scarier. It's much easier to think of him as morons,
2: but they're they're not at mm-hmm. all. Of course. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thanks for talking.
2: All right. Thanks. Uh, well, I'll let, let you there, know when uh, this is up. I hope. Yeah, I hope there's enough enough
0: usable stuff there for you. Okay. Um, That was James Chappell, Associate Professor of History at Duke and author of Inside the Post-Liberal Mind on the Bias Magazine's website at christiansocialism.com. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Domenico Scarlatti's Sonata K175, performed by Scott Ross. Till next week, bye.